Hey, and thanks for taking the time to listen with us here at Gospel Way as we seek to find rest in Christ. Please know that this is supplemental and does not replace your local church or the pastor that God has given to shepherd your soul. But it is our prayer that God will use these resources to bless you and point you to Jesus. Is going to look the same. The first page is the same to remind us what we're starting at, kind of what point we're at in in some of this series. And then the other pages we'll look at as we kind of move through things. Uh, but I've got in, in the bulletin and a few other places, the way that I've outlined this tonight is, number one, looking at how we can get the garden right. Number two, why does the garden matter? And number three, how do we get back into the garden? And that is a little bit of a loaded question, but hopefully we'll explain that and be able to articulate that correctly. Um, to start out this evening, I want to look in the book of Genesis, and you'll see this on your the first page of what I handed out. The book of Genesis chapter number 2 and verse number 16, and then I do want to turn over to verse number 15 of chapter number 3. But in chapter 2, and I encourage you to, if you get a chance, to read through a few of these chapters that I'll be talking about tonight at some point, um, specifically Genesis chapter number 2, and then that's, again, Hebrew, Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter number 2, and then 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. Because these three texts are going to help us see that the Old Testament and the New Testament were talking about each other and see that what we look at tonight is not new to the Scripture. Not taking the Scripture and trying to twist it around into a pretzel so that it fits, but it's just taking what the Scripture says and reading it slowly and seeing what the Scripture says about what... It's speaking about. But in chapter number 2, in verse number 16, the Bible says, And the Lord commanded, saying, Of every tree in the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And spoiler alert, they did. We turn over to chapter number 3 and verse number 15. We see God making this promise. In verse number 14 he says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all the cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And he goes on to speak to the woman and tells her that conception is going to be difficult. He speaks to Adam and he says the ground is not going to bring forth without toil. You're going to sweat and it's going to seem like everything that you do is working against you. And the reason that these two texts are important is because of the first questions that I want to look at this evening. And if you want to write these down, that's completely up to you. But there's a few things that from the text of Genesis um, that we need to kind of wrap our mind around, so to speak. <clears throat> and the first question that I have is, what was Adam's condition? So in this text, in chapter 2, when Jesus says to Adam, don't eat of this tree, 
what was his condition as far as morality, as far as his nature? He was sinless. He was sinless. Yeah. We, we, we would agree that he was sinless, that he was innocent, that he was, for all intents and purposes, Adam was perfect. There wasn't sin in Adam because there wasn't sin in the world. And secondly, what were the positive and negative parts of this covenant that God made with Adam? What was the curse? What was going to happen to Adam if he ate of the tree? God was very specific. He said, For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. But if we look back a little bit into chapter number two, there were some things that God had promised to Adam. So the bad, the curse, the bad part of this was that he would die if he ate it. But he was also given a tree that he could freely eat of and he wouldn't die. He would live forever. She had the tree of life, which we read about in other places in the Old Testament. And then eventually in in the book of the Revelation, there's a tree of life that is there. And then we have a tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we've got the positive was eternal life. The negative was death. And if we look through some of what we looked at last week, and if you do want to... Turn to, uh, let's see if I've got it. I may have put this in the handout that I forgot. But, yeah, it's here. So if you want to turn to your second page, graph number two. At the very top it says, what is federal headship? And what we're going to try to explore and try to make the case for through Scripture is that Adam was the, what is, what is known as the federal head or the representative or what some of the older writings called the public person didn't mean that he was popular. It didn't mean that he was first on the red carpet. It meant that he was the first. He was the representative. He was the one that if we're going to lift up and say, this is the one that is we're, we're going to put all of our eggs into this guy's basket, it was Adam. But federal, that's what federal headship is, and that's also why this theology, this hermeneutic of Scripture is referred to many times as 1689 federalism or 1689 federal theology so what is federal headship federal headship of adam and christ in the covenant of works and in the covenant of grace are mutually exclusive they don't overlap with each other in any way and that's the reason that i've got these two boxes here so god when we're looking at the covenant that he made with adam which is known as the covenant of works we can see these components that we talked about last week what makes a covenant Number one, a covenant is a relational agreement. It's agreement between two parties. And in this text, it was agreement between Adam and God. Adam was put in the garden. He listened to what God said because God was his creator. That was, that was his choice in the matter. Adam could listen to his creator because that's what he was made to do. He understood that. And that's in the same way in what was even talked about in the first paragraph of what we read tonight. That is what we all are due to give God as our creator, is obedience. We're, we're to see ourselves as we are and see him as he is. So you have this relationship, relational agreement, 
was the first point of this covenant. It was initiated by God, and we can see that in chapter number two because God is the one that comes to Adam and says, this is what you're not going to do, and this is what you are going to do. Adam didn't come bartering with God saying, hey, this tree looks good. How about you let me eat from this tree once a month, and then I'll eat from the rest of this other tree the rest of the time. There wasn't an initiation by Adam, but it was initiated by God. God was the one who came to Adam. It was for his good. And I've got here eternal life upon obedience. And that's a good thing. Living in the place where God created eternally in the presence of God is a good thing. So it was for Adam's good. And the condition of obedience that we see in this covenant, it was conditional because obedience gave life and a curse was attached for disobedience. So we see these two categories and for what we're looking at right now, we are all going to fall with Adam in this first covenant. We're all going to fall in this same place. So again, we talked about this last week. The reason that understanding this covenant is important is because it will affect our understanding of the gospel, how God operates with his people, what God has done for us, and it will impact our understanding of the law or the will of God both before and after salvation. So to get the garden right, we need to understand what was going on in these texts. First of all, we know that Adam was the federal head or the representative of mankind. And there are a few ways that we know this. Number one, we're all human. So Adam represents us because he was the first. If one of us were before Adam, then we could have been the representative, but we weren't. Adam was the first, so he represents. He got there first. He's the one that gets to be the representative. Second of all, the Hebrew word for man, and this is going to shock everybody, and I actually know how to say this from my last semester, but the Hebrew word for man is Adam. Sound familiar? If you, if you read through the Old Testament, there is no distinction between man and Adam. If you were reading in Hebrew, every time that you see man in these verses, you would see the word Adam. And every time that you see man throughout the rest of the Hebrew Old Testament, it's the word Adam. So that gives us another reason or another point to believe that Adam was the representative of mankind. Because we not only carry his nature, but in some sense we carry his name because we are mankind. It could be said, if we wanted to take the word from the Hebrew Old Testament, it could be said that we are Adamkind because that's our representative. That was the first. That was the one that God created and said, this is how I'm doing things. So we can argue that he was the representative for mankind, and he was given a job in Genesis chapter number 2. And if you read down specifically in verse number 8, or beginning of verse number 8, God gets to a point, and this is, this is I'm going to try to move as quickly as I can, but God gets to the point in creation that he, he we're at the seventh day. He looks at everything that he's made. He says it's very good. He blesses the seventh day. He sanctifies it in verse number 3, and it says that he rests. But there's a reason that he does that. 
So we see he rests in verse number three. Verse number four, he starts to speak of the generations of heaven and earth and how they were created. So he says, this is how I did things. This is how things came forth. He gets to chapter number, verse number seven. He says he breathes into Adam the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. Verse number eight, he, God planted a garden eastward. And catch this because we're going to come back to it. But he made Adam before he made the garden. He made the world. He made everything in the world. He makes Adam. And then in verse number says he plants a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Again, most, most of my life, I just assume that God made Adam in the garden. But he made the garden for Adam. And the reason this is important, and we'll see this eventually in the book of Hebrews as well, is because the garden was made for man, not man for the garden. In a sense, that's what Christ would eventually come to say. He says the Sabbath was made for man, not the man for the Sabbath. So the garden is made so that Adam can have something. He says he formed out of the ground. He grew every tree that was in the garden, and he grew a tree of knowledge and of good and evil. And he says a river went through the garden and watered it. And it was parted, and it basically came into four places. And some of this we're going to come back to in two weeks. I'm not going to take why, but we are. So he speaks of the dimensions of this garden. And he does a few things here, too. He speaks of some of the stones in this garden. And these stones are important as well, and we'll get to that here eventually. But he's speaking all these different kinds of stones and the way that it's split and where it's at. You get to verse number 15, and God says to Adam, I want you to, he says, he put him in the garden of Eden, and he tells him, I want you to dress and keep it. And we look at this word, it means to basically keep it up, dress, I mean, we know what dressings a garden would mean. And keep it or protect it is what God's command to Adam was. He said, I want you to not only make sure that it's functioning correctly and that it's showing my glory and that I'm able to dwell with man there, but I want you to protect it from things that ought not be there. So where Adam really messed up first is whenever there was a serpent in there that wasn't supposed to be there to begin with. He had come into the garden and he comes to Eve, and we all know how that story goes, but Adam's job was to dress and to keep it. And I said all of that to say this. Those same thoughts of being a curator that was given to Adam is also given to us in Numbers chapter number 3, verses 6 and 10, and it was given specifically to the sons of Aaron. They are told to keep and to guard the tabernacle, which is where we understand the presence of God would dwell. In essence, Adam was given a garden that would, for all intents and purposes, be a temple where God would dwell with his people. And that's always been the point. The point has always been for God to dwell with his people, for his presence to be among his people. And it's not any mistake that as we read through the rest of the Old Testament, what are these people looking for? What do these prophets prophesy? They talk about a city where God dwells with his people. They talk about where people come in and out. And even in the book of Revelation, we see that. A city where God dwells. He is the light. And people come in and out. 
This is what God was trying to put in the beginning with Adam. His intent was for Adam to be the curator of a place, a temple, if we want to call it that, a tabernacle, a place where he could dwell with Adam and his descendants. He was going to be the federal head. And the reason that this is important is because everything that we gain in Christ plus some is what we should have had in Adam. That's what Christ came to give us back. Christ came to fix what Adam destroyed. I think we would all agree with that. But again, the reason that that is important is because what was intended to be was Adam was there. He was supposed to do what God had said. And him and his children will be able to dwell with God. Adam was given a covenant to keep and to guard or to dress and to keep the place that God intended to dwell with his people. Adam was going to be the one that gave life to his children, bringing them into a state of glorification and enjoyment of God. In essence, what should have happened is this. Adam was supposed to keep the garden. In doing this, and in keeping the command of God, he would have gained for himself and his inheritance glorification. He would have brought them in to life. They would have been become glorified, just as any of us who come into Christ, and we'll get to that here in a second. But they would have been brought into life, and they would have been able to live in that state of glorifying and enjoying God forever. That was the purpose of man. The, the original purpose of man and the purpose of man is still to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. So that was why Adam was given. But again, full disclosure, Adam kind of messed that up. And before we move on to the next page, I want to point out, and I put a sword here with a flame around it saying reversal is barred. And we see that from Genesis chapter number three and verse number 24, where the Bible says that he drove man out of the garden at the east of the Garden of Eden, cherubs and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So they are barred from ever getting back into this state through a covenant of works again. But this is where we get into the good side of this. So that's, it's, it, it, it's kind, of, kind of a bummer. The one who was supposed to represent us was a complete and miserable failure. And he got kicked out of the place where he was supposed to be. And we got kicked out with him. And one of the reasons that we know that we got kicked out with him, because what did God say was going to happen? And we don't have to take a vote because I've never experienced some of this. But... God told Eve, he said, you're going to have to labor in childbirth. He said, it's going to be painful. And if there's anyone here who has birthed a child and it was not painful, let me know. I don't know of anybody. I've, I was around for four births personally, and all four of them, painful was not the word, painless was not the word I would use to describe them. So we are taking part in this curse because childbirth is not easy. And 
for those of us who work, men or women, most of the time it seems like stuff is working against us. Whether we are out in the field and we're trying to keep up a garden like we would think of Adam, the garden, the ground works against us. The weather works against us. The programs we use to inventory doors works against us. The programs that we use to do sales works against us. The motors that we're trying to reinstall, they work against us. The bolts that are supposed to come out and they don't, they work against us. Everything that we do in labor works against us. And we can see that we're part of Adam because of those things. But here is the reason that all of this is important. Why does it matter? So if you will, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. I'm going to read a few verses here. But Paul does something interesting in 1 Corinthians. He alludes to this in Romans chapter number 5, which we looked at some last week. And I thought it was important that we looked at it last week so that I could help transition, hopefully, into what I'm looking at this evening. But in Romans 5, we looked at some of this, this same thought. And we'll, again, we'll look back at it. But 1 Corinthians 15, specifically verse 21 and 22, Paul writes... For since by man came death, by man also came also resurrection from the dead. For in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So I've got our columns here. If we jump down to verse number 45, Adam, he doesn't just make an analogy, but he gives us an exact parallel. Verse number 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. So Paul doesn't just say, okay, Christ is like Adam. He says Christ is Adam. He's not saying this is kind of how things happen. He says, no, this is exactly how things happen. We have a first Adam here, and we have a second Adam here. If you're in the first Adam, you're going to die because that's what Adam gave you. He gave you death. If you're in the second Adam, you're going to live because that is what that Adam gave you. He gave you life. So if we go down to the first number 46 and 47, howbeit that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural. He's saying Adam was first, and afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is also earth, earthly, and the second man is the Lord from heaven. So he's saying, what you got the second time is better than the first time. The first time, it was a man from the ground. The second time, it's the Lord from heaven. So he's setting this distinction between these two categories, and that's where we get that idea of a representative a federal head, somebody who's going to be in our place, somebody whose category we fit in. And again, if we're in the category of works with Adam, we're going to die because we cannot meet those works. And for that matter, God has barred the way into life from anybody who tries. But if we are in Christ, we live. And this is the reason where Adam was supposed to keep and guard Eden, the garden where God would dwell with his people, Christ kept and guarded himself 
from sin and temptation while he dwelt with his people. So God brings a garden and he puts his people there to dwell. But when man messes that up, God comes and dwells with his people. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. John said he saw the word that was made in flesh and he beguiled his glory. He said God came and he kept himself. He completed all of the works while dwelling with his people. And in Romans 15, verse number 45, I want, I want you to look at something. It says that Adam was made a living soul. Christ was made a quickening spirit. Where Adam was supposed to give life to people who would come into this headship with him and messed up what he gave them. He gave them life. He attempted to. But he gave them physical life. And that's what Paul was referring to when he says one's natural, one's spiritual. He's saying Adam was supposed to bring you into life naturally and give you life spiritually. He was supposed to have done everything for you so that you were glorified and could dwell with God. But when he messed that out, messed that up, Christ came and he now has become a life-giving spirit. Where Adam was supposed to give life, Christ is coming and he is quickening what is dead. So he's fixing what Adam did. And in Hebrews chapter number 2 and verse number 10, where Adam was supposed to bring many sons into the presence of God, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 10 tells us that Christ brings many sons to glory. So he goes and he gets these people in Adam, and he brings them in to what they were supposed to have to begin with. That was actually the song that we sang this morning, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. His love was that he saw what happened and he brought away that he would bring many sons to glory. The sons that were supposed to be born into glory, he brings them to glory. So why does all this matter? Turn your page over, and this is what part we covered last week. But in Romans chapter number 5, and if you want to turn over there, you can. You don't necessarily have to, but... Romans chapter number 5, we see the implications of what Paul is speaking to in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. He says, starting in verse number 15, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. So he says they're different things. Adam, the, 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 the curse and the gift are different. For, it th- for through, the offense, through the offense one of one, Adam, many be dead were born spiritually dead because Adam died that day, just like God said he would. Much more by the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. So Adam sins, death comes to many. Christ comes, grace comes to many. Verse number 16. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. Again, he emphasizes that this is different. For judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is all is of many offenses unto justification. So he says one brought condemnation because of his judgment. One sin was judged and condemnation came to everybody. But he says that one man's gift brings justification 
to many. So the judgment, he takes the judgment on himself and, is ju- and many are justified before him. Verse number 17. For by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Death is reigned now. We all die. Much more, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. So we have one bringing in a reign of death. One gift brings a reign of life. Verse number 18. Therefore, as by the offense one of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So everybody who's in Adam dies because they're born of man. Everybody who's in Christ lives because they've been reunited to Christ by faith. And in verse number 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So Adam, when you're born into him, makes you a sinner. When you're born into Christ, you've been made righteous. So before we go on to the next page, if you turn back to the first page, the one that looks like a telescope almost, this is what we're seeing, and this is the point that that we're at in this this scale of things. And some of this, I hope, will begin to make even more sense as we continue on. But the covenant of works, in particular, though it, it's it, in all honesty, it, it's a piece of everything that seems almost redundant to us. At least to me, it does. It's like I know all this already. Why does all this matter? Well, it matters because. Christ is getting back what was supposed to have already happened. And if we understand what was supposed to be happened, then what Christ did makes sense. Otherwise, and again, we covered some of this last week, but if we don't understand this covenant of works, then we're not going to understand the work of Christ. God told Adam, I want you to do things so that your righteousness can be imputed upon everybody after you. And when we see Christ, we see terms like he came to fulfill all righteousness, or he did this, that righteousness may be fulfilled, or he did this, that it would be fulfilled, that the scripture has said. So he does all of these things to not only fix where Adam failed, but then he dies to crush the serpent's head and pay the debt of what Adam did. Christ had to pay the transgression and keep all the works. If any of us would have been born and lived completely sinless and perfect lives, it would have done us no good. And the reason for that is, and we find it in Romans chapter number 3, it says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I believe what Paul was talking about there wasn't simply just a personal coming short. I think what Paul was trying to explain in chapter number 3 is that as humanity, we were supposed to have the glory of God in the garden with Adam. But because Adam failed, we all came short of that. Together, collectively in Adam, we all came short of that glorification. And God said, none of you can have it back. He put the sword there. He said, nobody goes back into this. But again, understanding Christ, we can start to grasp hold of why he did what he did. Again, because if, if I lived a perfect, righteous life 
it benefits me no good because I've still failed to reach that pinnacle of the glory of God. I fell short of that because I'm an Adam. I can't get out of Adam. That block of Adam, that covenant of works, even if I keep that covenant of works, I am still in a block of death. I'm still represented by death. God will look at those works, and what does Paul says? He sees. He sees. We could have lived an absolutely perfect life, and because we are in Adam, he looks down through Adam, and he sees sin. Our, our good works... Our sinlessness is tainted by the sin of Adam. And why is that so important? Because when we're moved into Christ, his righteousness taints, for lack of a better word, everything. All of our sin now to God looks like righteousness because of our representative sinlessness. And again, that's the reason that the garden matters. The purpose of Christ was to reverse things and return us to what was supposed to be our original estate. And if we can understand that, it basically just sets the rest of Scripture out for plain view. We don't have to try and figure anything else out. Because the Christ of work, Christ's work clarifies Adam's failure and vice versa. Adam's failure clarifies Christ's work. That's the reason that both are important. We need to understand what Adam did, what he was supposed to do, and where he ended up so that we can understand what Christ did, what he was supposed to do, and where we will end up when we come into him by faith. And again... Not, and, I'm, and I won't belabor this because we'll come back to this throughout some of these other covenants. But the reason that you see prophets in the Old Testament talking about a time when everything's going to be like it's supposed to be, the reason that the Jews were looking for a Messiah to do these things is because they were only given glimpses of what was to come. They knew what it was supposed to be, but they didn't see the full picture. And that's why, again, why do we have this on the first page? The covenant of works, it was very black and white. Literally on the paper and figuratively, it was a very black and white covenant. But when that covenant was ended, the covenant of grace was brought into play. It was slowly revealed throughout the Old Testament. So they knew what they were looking for. And again, I'm, I'm not going to give some of this away because we'll get to it when we get to with Abraham. They knew what they were looking for. They weren't confused about what they were looking for. They just didn't know how it was going to come because they had not been given the full picture. They didn't see everything clearly. They didn't see everything like it was supposed to be. All they knew is that somebody's coming and they're going to return us to the way things were supposed to be. That God's going to dwell with his people. That people are going to go in and out. That there are going to be people who are living to be 100 years old and they're still going to call them a child. That there are going to be kids putting their hands in dens of snakes. That's going to be lions laying down with lambs. All of these things, they knew this stuff was going to happen because that was what they were supposed to have to begin with. And the reason that that stuff matters because that's what we've been given in Christ. We've been given not only God who came to us in the first advent, but we've been given the opportunity to dwell with God when he comes back in the second advent. 
So how do we get into the garden? And you want to turn to the last page, it's all there. But again, we need to understand that we're not just getting back to the Garden of Eden. We're not just getting back to a place where there's trees growing and animals. And we're not just getting back there. We're getting where Adam was supposed to get to. We're getting glorification. We're dwelling with God. Because if we were just going back to the garden, then maybe one day somebody would eat the wrong fruit again. We're past that, though. Christ came and he drank the cup of the wrath of God. All of those bad fruit, he, taken, he took it all. There's no more bad fruit for us to get a hold of anymore. All that we have now is that tree of life who took all the bad fruit for us. How do we get back to this glorification? Paul tells us, and we all know this section of Scripture, but in Ephesians chapter number 2, verses 7, 8, and 9, Paul says that in the ages to come he might show forth the exceeding riches of his grace in kind in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So what was the plan? What was the covenant of redemption? That we would get to a point where God would say, hey, this is what I was doing. Everything that I was doing, everything that I've been trying to show you throughout the Old Testament, everything that I've given to you in my word as New Testament saints, all of this is because I want to show you the exceeding riches of my grace and my kindness toward you. He says in verse number 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So what I attempted to do here was to give us a graph of how we get from Adam into Christ. And again, we know some of this. So we're in Adam, all die. We want to get to Christ where all live. We got into Adam towards the bottom, entrance by birth. But what does Paul say gets us from death to salvation? Because it's from Adam to Christ. It says through faith. So I've got a little cross here to, to emphasize faith because that's how faith came. How did the cross come? What we've seen in the other text tonight, it was a gift. A gift of grace. We didn't deserve it. We deserved to die with Adam. That's what we deserved. But because God so loved the world, he gave his only son. It was a gift of grace. That grace comes... How are we saved? It's only by grace. We couldn't get from Adam to Christ. We couldn't do it. God had to, by grace, give us some way to get there. How do we get? How do we? Okay, so grace is there. How are we going to get from one side to the other? Paul says through faith. In the Old Testament, the ones who didn't see all this clearly, all they knew is a promise was coming. They didn't know who the promise was, what it was, what it would look like, what he was going to do. They didn't know a lot about him, but they knew a promise was coming. God says Abraham saw the promise, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was faith. If you read the book of Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Adam. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, and so on and so forth. All these people, by faith, in the promise, we're able to 
have part into the promise. Even though the promise hadn't come yet, they had part in it. For us, it's through faith and the fulfilled promise. We look back. We see what happened. And we talked about this some Tuesday night. If you look through the New Testament especially, when you see faith mentioned, it's mentioned as a mode in which you grasp something. If you read back through pretty much anybody who, <laughs> who lived more than about 100 years ago, they all mention faith in the same way. They say faith is the way that we grab hold of. They say faith is what, the way that we are able to grasp hold of the promises of God. Other men give the example of a, a spigot. There's, there's actually a man named, named Thomas Boston. He said that faith was the spigot that is attached to Christ through which the graces of Christ waters us and those around us. It's not an exact quote, but that's basically what I said. He said, grace is what you plug, or faith is the way that you plug in to Christ. So we get to Christ by being plugged into him by faith. Faith comes by grace. We'll look at next week how in the covenant of Noah and even in the book of Titus, Paul says grace has appeared to all men. So the grace is coming out to everybody. But what, what do we do? We're given the grace. The faith is there in which we can go from Adam to Christ. But we shut the door. It's what Israel did. They were given Christ, literally, and they shut the doors of faith and said, we don't want that. They were given it. Mm-hmm. Just like anybody we come in contact with, anybody that has ever lived, has been given the grace of God in some form and fashion. But they have shut the doors of faith, saying, no, I'll stay where I'm at. I, li- I, li- I like it okay over here. I like sinning. I'm cool with being an Adam. So they shut that mode of faith. What does the gospel do? The gospel prize faith open. And we talked about this Tuesday. In the life of the believer, the reason that some seemingly don't even know if they really trust Christ or even know if God is real is because the faith that they once had has constricted because there's been no knowledge of the gospel given. They trust Christ. They are in Christ. But that faith has constricted itself. That grace that's supposed to flow out is coming out in drips. Why are there people who say they trust Christ and they act like the devil? Because there's no grace coming through them. There's little bits and pieces you can see where there's some grace here and some grace there. But they may act like the devil himself in their lives because that grace has constricted it or that faith has constricted itself so to the point that they don't even know what's coming through them anymore. First Peter says there are going to be people who act this way and who do these things and it's because they have forgotten that they have been cleansed. That faith has constricted itself so to the point that they forgot grace was even coming through it anymore. When the Bible tells us, Lord, what, is he, what, what, what do the disciples pray? Lord, increase our faith. Make it bigger. Why? We want to see your grace. Why does Jesus say, through the faith that is the size of mustard seed, you can move mountains? Why is that? Because it's not about the 
the intensity of our faith. It's about the grace that our faith is attached to. How that grace is displayed in our life is irrelevant if our, if our faith has been attached to Christ. What we are called to do as believers is to eventually get back to this outpouring of grace that we have in Christ. This, if we want to call it, for lack of a better term, if we want to call it a garden life, what we're called to get back to is a life that looks like grace going all over the place because that's all Adam knew. All Adam knew was the presence of God. All Adam knew was the one who would come in the cool of the evening and just envelop the whole area with his presence. That's all Adam knew. And if we can ever get to the point where by faith we see what Christ did, then we can begin to live that abundant life that John tells us that Christ came to give us. It's a life full of grace and truth. Christ came grace upon grace upon grace. Again, the Bible, we, we read through, and I'm, I mean, I'm as bad as anybody. We read through the scriptures and all we see is cliches. And little snippets that make us feel good sometimes and snippets that make us feel bad other times. Or snippets that we can punch somebody in the face with or snippets that we can help somebody out with. But the entirety of Scripture is showing us that it is Christ who came, allows us to attach through faith to the grace that he pours out. And that grace grows when we see him for who he is in a better way. There's a reason. There's a reason. Again, we talked about some of this Tuesday, not meaningly, not meaning to, but there's a reason that when we come in on Sunday mornings that we begin the service with explaining how bad we are and how good Christ is. Because what that does is it takes the constricted grace that's been closed up because my faith throughout the day has the week has gotten weak. And that knowledge of the gospel comes in and it pries that open so that God can pour his grace into us. That's the reason that the corporate gathering is important because we're supposed to come in here that our faith be pried open and increased by the knowledge of the scriptures so that God can show us his grace more and more and more. And so that grace can flow out upon other people more and more and more. And me and Brother Ricky, we would talk about this again Tuesday. That I come in sometimes and my faith is constricted. And maybe Brother Charles's faith hasn't constricted as much as mine. So his grace pours out on me and it opens up my faith. And then our grace is pouring out on top of each other. That's the reason the corporate worship is important. This is what God has given us now. And I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying all this for no reason, I promise. What we've been given now by grace through faith. Is Christ now. We've been given a down payment on the garden that is to come. What does the book of Ephesians say? We've been given an earnest of our inheritance. The little bit that we get to experience now, God was just saying, hey, here's a down payment. There's more to come. Here's the first little bit of it. Just so you know I'm not lying. Just so you can be confident that what I say is true. Here's a little bit now. It's the same thing as an engagement ring, a down payment to a house. It just means more is coming. But what we're able to connect through, we are now in Christ. 
We're not been given out little bits of righteousness here and there. We are in Christ. We are in righteousness. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And we are living now in a little picture, in a little area, with a little bit of understanding, as Paul says, looking through a glass darkly, not understanding everything completely. We're looking through and we see a little bit of what we've got. We might see a little bit more we hear the gospel again. See a little bit more when we hear the gospel again. Don't hear the gospel for a little while, start to forget some of it. Hear the gospel again, start to remember. But the point of all this being, that's the way that we're going to get back to the garden. What we've been promised, what Adam lost, what we regained in Christ, this glorification, what we're getting back to, we've been given a little bit of. Adam was given the full thing, and he lost the full thing. He didn't get the opportunity to have little bits of the garden after he was kicked out. The only thing that Adam had was a promise that one day things would be taken back to like they were supposed to be. That's all he had. But in the grace, the covenant of grace sealed, that we see on the first page, we can have a little bit of grasp what Adam was supposed to have. We don't get the full thing yet. Eventually we will. But right now, through faith, we're able to experience that gift, that grace, and little little aspects here, little bits there. Here's some, there's some. That's how we get back to the garden. We're reconnected back to the source of the garden through faith, and we're experiencing that some here. Again, we're in Christ spiritually. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, you're in Christ spiritually now, but eventually, and that's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 15. He's talking about the resurrection. He's saying, you're in Christ spiritually now, but one day you're going to be in Christ naturally too. You have everything. And that's the reason that all this is important. The reason that, and, and I, was, I was tempted to skip over the covenant of works again because it's something that we just, I mean, we, we know and we kind of take for granted. But it's important for us to know what we lost in Adam. And then because of that, it's important to know what we gain in Christ. So anytime we look at Adam, let's remember Christ clarifies Adam's loss. Anytime we look at Christ, let's look back and say, well, Adam lost this, but I'm getting this through Christ. And we can enjoy a little bit of the garden now. Promise that we will enjoy the entirety of the garden at some point, sometime in the future. Let's pray.